Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Before moving up to Maryland, we were at a parish in Virginia that met in a storefront. And we made it look really beautiful. It didn't feel like a storefront, but the building was a storefront. And we, uh, the, the space that we occupied was actually sold at one point, I think in 2015. And we had to move because the new owners of the building wanted to turn that into office space and, um, and get more money, I think, that way, which makes sense. So for a few months, we were homeless. We were doing church in a community room in our parish neighborhood, and we called it Church in a Box. Church in a Box. Every Sunday, we had to put up the altar. We had to set out rows of chairs for people. We had to set up all the equipment that we used for the liturgy, and we had to bring our own vestments back and forth and all the other headaches that come with doing church in a box. And what, what happened after the service concluded? We had to pack it all up. We had to put it back in the box. That's right. That's right. So this was, of course, exhausting and a headache on our part, but also it created a certain instability in parish life. I mean, many people who didn't come as regularly as we would have liked during that season because we were sort of a nomadic church for, for probably two, three months. Many people, um, many people started attending regularly as soon as we landed in our space. You know, there was a kind of stability that, re- that returned once we stopped doing church in a box. And during that time, I remember thinking that we were kind of like the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings as they were waiting to, to get into the promised land, you know. I mean, Israel was a nation of, with a nomadic history. You can think of Abraham. He left his family and wandered until God led him into the land of Canaan. Then his great-grandchildren had to wander down to Egypt because of a famine where they resided for a few generations until God delivered them from slavery through the Exodus. Then they wandered the wilderness for another 40 years until they finally reached the promised land. But once they reached the promised land, they then had to fight tooth and nail to possess the land that God had for them. Now, if you've moved a lot in your life, then you know that there's something about transience that makes it difficult to achieve stability. And I think for Israel, we can imagine how hard this life of moving through the wilderness and moving from one place to another was. This is especially true from a religious perspective. You know, we like our habits, we like our liturgies, and when you're constantly moving, those feel disrupted. The people, of course, did have a tabernacle that moved with them, and the tabernacle reminded them that God's presence was among them during those wilderness journeys. But still, imagine having to deconstruct and reconstruct that thing every time you moved. Way worse than church in a box. Even once they entered the land, initially, the Israelites' worship was still decentralized. During the time of the judges and during the time of the early monarchy, there was no central location. There were a few different places where you could go to worship. But at times, this worship was chaotic and disorganized. So you can imagine the monumental significance of the temple when God finally allowed Solomon to build it. Here was a building that would centralize the Israelites' worship. It would be significant not only in terms of the liturgies of the people, but also as a symbol. Further, the temple brought a certain stability to the sacrificial system. They could offer the sacrifice year after year after year in the same place. And of course, there's a sense in which the temple brought social cohesion as well. It was certainly a center of cultic worship, but Israel's worship was very closely tied to their ethnicity. So the temple was a great triumph, not only for Judaism, but also for the Jewish people. Most importantly, however, I think the temple was a constant reminder that God dwells among humanity. 
Of course, we know that God can't be contained in a building, but we also do know that he condescended to be specially or even maybe sacramentally present with his people in the temple. We see this during the dedication liturgy, which is where our reading is from this morning in 1 Kings chapter 8. The presence of God fills the temple. The priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, the author says, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. I like to think that cloud was incense, just me. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from that dedication liturgy. The Israelites processed the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Solomon then blessed the Lord, and then he went and stood before the altar where with his hands spread towards heaven, he made prayers of consecration over the space. And so verses 37 through 43 that Ken read just a few moments ago come from that prayer. And the verses that we read can be split into two parts that sort of mirror each other. The first part is that Solomon prays for the temple to be a place of comfort for the Israelites. He prays, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. So the temple was this anchor for the Israelite religion and spirituality. It was a place where people could go to plead to God, to seek forgiveness of their sins, and learn to conform their lives to God's law. The second part of the prayer, interestingly, is for the temple to be a place of missional attraction, drawing foreigners to worship the one true God. This might come as a surprise for us, given if we know the the ethnic tendencies, ethnocentric tendencies of Judaism. Solomon prays, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This was always what Israel was supposed to do. This shouldn't surprise us. Uh, This isn't a new thing Solomon is inventing, this idea of reaching out to the nations. This was always the telos of Israel. The Israelites were not supposed to build an ethnic enclave aimed at being disconnected from the world. They weren't Jewish Amish. No, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. God said to Abraham, Israel was a peculiar people who worshiped differently from the heathen nations that surrounded them. They did keep a distinctive sacrificial system. They had a distinctive law that included things like circumcision and eating kosher. But Israel was at its heart a priestly nation, meaning that they represented and brought God to the nations of the world while also offering sacrifices to God, not only for their nation, but for the sake of the whole world. And so Solomon places the temple squarely in Israel's evangelical mission, the center of Israel's liturgical life. The nations could hear the Lord's great name, his salvific actions, and his strength. 
And as a result, Solomon sees this day when foreigners would would come to the temple in order to call on the name of the Lord. So what do we as Christians do with the temple? I mean, we don't go worship at the Jewish temple. There's no Jewish temple to worship at. But even if there was, we wouldn't necessarily make pilgrimages for that purpose. In fact, even before the temple was destroyed, the early Christians were, were actually quite critical of Jewish temple theology. St. Stephen, right before his martyrdom in Acts 7, says, The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. St. Paul reiterates the same point in Mars Hill when he addresses the Greek philosophers. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Well, we do keep a tabernacle above the altar where Jesus is physically present through the Eucharist. We still don't have a kind of central temple imagery. We don't go to a building um, in one place in order to worship. And why is that? Well, I think the answer is that in the new covenant, really, there are three temples. There are three places where God dwells with us. He dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. He dwells with us in the church, and he dwells in our individual souls. Jesus is the real temple. The building was a beautiful foreshadowing of the greater reality to come. Remember, the temple was the place where God dwelt among humanity. And what does St. Matthew tell us about Jesus' title in Matthew chapter 1? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. In the prologue of John, the evangelist tells us that the word was made flesh and dwelt, or the verb there is tabernacled among us. Jesus himself makes this connection when he tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. His interlocutors mistakenly think he's talking about the physical temple, like he's going to commit some sort of act of terrorism. But John clarifies, he spake of the temple of his body. In Hebrews 9, the author describes the temple. He describes the functions of the temple, but then concludes that Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The new and better temple is here. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And it's not a building, it's a person. Now, those of us who have been baptized have been made a part of the body of Christ, meaning that we are temples as well. St. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, speaking to the collective group of the Corinthians, he says, ye are God's building. A few chapters later, he exhorts the Corinthians by reminding them that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. In the church, which is the company of all faithful people, we receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, which has rendered the Old Testament sacrifices obsolete. In the church, the temple of God, we are reminded of God's enduring presence. We're made aware of that through the proclamation of the gospel, through our encounter with him through the scriptures, but also through the real presence of his body and blood in the Eucharist. 
And so in the body of Christ, we are continually reminded that God is present through the indwelling spirit, not only in ourselves individually, but in all of us who have been joined together by virtue of baptism. And this has serious implications for our self-understanding as Christians. Seasons like Lent present us an opportunity to dedicate ourselves or rededicate ourselves, as the case may be, to our mission. Just like the temple was good for Israel and the nations, so the church is there for our good, each one of us individuals, and for the good of the whole world. We are a nation of priests, just like Israel was. And this means that just as the temple was the place where the Israelites could make their confessions and receive forgiveness through the Day of Atonement, so we can experience that forgiveness through the church's ministry of reconciliation. But even more than that, it means that we, as the church, must look outward. The temple was to be a unique place that would draw the nations to God. Similarly, we, the church, through our corporate worship, through the proclamation of the gospel, through our lives and deeds, should be bringing God out into the world and thereby bringing people into the church. Ye are the temple of God. Live as becomes it. Hugh of St. Victor, one of my favorite medieval theologians, has this great line that I'll close with. He says, he says, enter into your own inmost heart and make a dwelling place for God. Make him a temple. Make him a house. Make him a pavilion. Make him an ark of the covenant Make him an ark of the flood. No matter what you call it, it's all one house of God. In the temple, let the creature adore the creator. In the house, let the son revere the father. In the pavilion, let the knight adore the king. Under the covenant, let the disciple listen to the teacher. And in the flood, let him that is shipwrecked beseech him who guides the helm. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.